Hello, and welcome to Talking Opinions. I am your host, Anthony Livingston Hall. The inauguration of Joe Biden to replace Donald Trump as President of the United States was replete with reassuring images. For me, though, none was more so than the image of former Vice President Mike Pence sitting front and center, because this meant that he had defiantly snubbed Trump's invitation to attend a competing send-off event which he hoped would steal much of Biden's thunder. What's more, the relief on Pence's face plainly showed where he preferred to be, because he was no longer affecting that constipated countenance of loyalty, which he clearly felt obliged to wear like permafrost throughout Trump's presidency. Still, with all due respect to Pence, I found the image of former President George W. Bush reassuring and endearing in equal measure. Now hold your horses, <laughs> as George W. would say down there in Texas, because I know that, for many of you, the legacies of Iraq and Katrina are enough to damn him to hell forever. But, if you have only one fair-minded bone in your body, George W. should need only show one of the many images he and Michelle Obama have become so famous for to receive your forgiveness. Because they all show this odd couple in the throes of such PDA that no matter how manifestly innocent, it would be unnatural for Laura and Barack not to feel a tinge of jealousy, respectively. The point is that Michelle embracing George W. in this fashion indicates that she has forgiven all his political sins, and her character and judgment are such that if she has accepted him in her good graces, then who the hell are you to continue to refuse to? Anyway, two of his presidential initiatives explain why I have always had a soft spot for George W. Bush. The first is the Millennium Challenge Account for African Development, which he launched in March 2002. The second is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, a.k.a. PEPFAR, which he launched in January 2003. To date, funding for PEPFAR alone has reached nearly $100 billion. It is generally recognized as the largest effort in history by a single nation to combat a single disease. More to the point, every leader in sub-Saharan Africa will tell you that PEPFAR has saved the lives of millions across Africa. But I was so impressed with its early success and with that of Bush's other initiative to promote sustainable development in Africa that I wrote a commentary titled President Bush has done more for Africa than any other president on June 20, 2005. 
I've been arguing this point ever since, to the utter consternation of almost all who bothered to read or listen. But you'd be hard-pressed to find a pundit or politician outside Africa who has publicly acknowledged this unassailable and salutary fact. Side note. We all know that President Trump had a psychopathic need to discredit every initiative every one of his predecessors ever launched. If this were not the case, Bush's PEPFAR to fight AIDS in Africa, coupled with Obama's response to the Ebola outbreak there, could have served as a blueprint to help the world fight COVID-19. And that is a truly damning fact. In any event, rock stars and actors have become some of the most credible statesmen of our time. In fact, celebrity-obsessed world has made actors and rock stars the statesmen of our time, is the title to one of my very first commentaries, which I published on my blog on May 23, 2005. In it, I bemoaned how African heads of state were taking political overtures from Bono and Angelina Jolie far more seriously than similar overtures from then UN General Secretary Kofi Annan. This is why, even before Michelle's public embrace, I thought their endorsement of my argument would help cure Bush's die-hard critics of their pathological hatred and allow them to show him the respect he was due for his leadership on Africa. No rock star was more effusive and credible in this context than Bob Geldof, not least because he himself was, and is, such an acclaimed humanitarian. Those of us of a certain age are most familiar with him as the organiser of the 1985 Live Aid concert for famine relief in Ethiopia. That concert inspired many others, including the 20th anniversary Live Eight concerts, which sounded the quixotic call to make poverty history. The point is that no lesser person than Geldof has been singing George W's praises for almost as long as I have. For example, the June 27, 2005 issue of Time magazine quotes him saying, and I quote, President Bush is a bloody hero to Africa, no matter what ungrateful Africans, jealous Europeans, or stupid Americans say, end quote. <laughs> Come to think of it, that sounds like something I might have said. <laughs> Bemoaning the dumbing and numbing effect of political ideology, Geldof noted in particular how the French simply refused to accept that Bush had done more for Africa than any other American president, even though this is empirically so. Bono and other rock stars sang similar praises, but Geldof had a knack for singing an occasional discordant tune. This was the case, for example, when he juxtaposed the liberal and purportedly Africa-loving Bill Clinton 
with the conservative and purportedly Africa-hating George W. by famously exclaiming that Clinton talked the talk but did diddly squat, whereas Bush doesn't talk but he delivers. Not to be droned out by rock stars, actor Richard Gere upstaged Geldof and shocked everyone to boot at an AIDS benefit in 2003. This not only because the event was being held in Hollywood, in a den of Clinton worshippers, but also because Senator Hillary Clinton was the guest of honour. Yet, every bit the officer and gentleman he played on the screen, Gear seized the opportunity to deliver this now daring and notorious line. And I quote, Senator Clinton, I'm sorry. But your husband did nothing for AIDS for eight years. End quote. Ouch. In a similar vein, I've been constrained to note in my annual World AIDS Day commentary that despite promising to increase funding for PEPFAR, President Obama failed to do so. He blamed prevailing budget constraints stemming from the financial crisis of 2008 and congressional Republicans who controlled the government's purse throughout most of his presidency. But President Bush could have blamed prevailing budget constraints stemming from 9-11 and a Republican party whose idea of foreign aid is selling military weapons at a discount for despots to use to kill their own people, not donating taxpayers' money to relief organizations to prevent poor people from dying of AIDS. To be fair, though, I have quipped that even if the money were available to increase funding, Republicans who uploaded Bush might have accused Obama of using American taxpayers' money to further some pan-African liberation agenda. Absurd, I know, but they have routinely accused him of things that are even more so. But there is no denying that, if Obama were not black, and such a cool cat, Geldof, Bono, and Gear would have called him out, just as they called out Clinton, because, ironically, his record on HIV, AIDS, and sustainable development in Africa is even worse than Clinton's, let alone Bush's. That said, nobody can accuse any of these celebrities of being a right-wing nut or a convert to Bush's forest gum crusade to transform the world according to his notions of democracy. Therefore, I hope reprising their unconditional praise of him will demonstrate the importance of being earnest when it comes to recognizing those who are truly helping the poor make it through these extraordinary times. After all, the tens of millions made jobless or homeless or both by COVID-19, who really don't give a damn about the politics of those rendering aid. Not to mention that, in Bush's case, he must have come across like a proverbial messiah, compared with most African leaders, who were either brutalizing their people or stealing their national resources. I would be remiss to end this episode 
without mentioning how loath some Frenchmen were, to give Bush credit for anything, and this was especially the case on matters related to the African continent, where they retained delusions of colonial noblesse oblige. Of course, the feeling was entirely mutual among some Americans, so much so that they began calling French fries freedom fries. Perhaps you recall how opposition among left-wing nuts in France to Bush's ill-fated invasion of Iraq provoked jingoistic rage among right-wing nuts in America. But this was only the latest manifestation of irreconcilable differences that make these two countries such perennial frenemies, which is why it warrants no further comment. I only raised it to note the Bush redemption story it gave rise to. As indicated earlier, nobody in their right mind could have imagined ever seeing George W. Bush as an image of both reassurance and endearment on the world stage. And mind you, it's arguable that his Millennium Challenge account for African development and PEPFAR more than compensated for the way he bungled Iraq and Katrina. Yet it speaks volumes about Bush's character and soul that he has spent much of his time since leaving office atoning for his political sins. He has done this, among other things, by painting haunting portraits of military veterans and sharing their stories of courage and sacrifice in books and exhibitions. As penance goes, I don't think it gets any more personal than that, do you? On the other hand, what do you think it says about the character and soul of former President Donald Trump that he will not even think about, let alone perform any penance, to atone for the deaths of 400,000 Americans who died because of the way he bungled COVID-19? That's it, and if you liked it, please subscribe. It's free. If you'd like to contact me, I invite you to email anthonyhall279 at gmail.com or use the contact feature on my blog at www.ipjn.com. Thank you for listening, and until the next Talking Opinions, goodbye.